Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 4 of the Book of Hebrews, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This fourth installment is entitled, Jesus is Better Than a Jewish High Priest, and it was recorded live in the Discovery class at Owasso First Assembly on October 4th. Well, you know that we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and I'll remind you that this book was probably written about the time Nero was getting ready to commit suicide. He was that uh, very evil emperor that was the one who put the Apostle Paul to death. At any rate, it was written to Christians who were Jewish in background, so they knew the law. We don't know who wrote it. Some people say that uh, the Apostle Paul may have written it. Others say that Apollos wrote it. And if you could sum up the message of the whole thing in just one phrase, it would be Jesus is greater. So, so far, chapter one's basic message was that Jesus is greater than the angels because he's God. But then you get to chapter two, and it's the same basic message about him being greater than the angels, but the focus has shifted to the fact that Jesus was made man. Then last week, we talked about how Jesus is better than Moses, and I summed up Moses' life for you and reminded you that Moses gave a wonderful prophecy before he died that someday God is going to send a prophet like me, and you should listen to him talking about Jesus. So now we're in chapter four, but instead of just diving right into it, I think it would be good if you had a reminder of some of the same background that the Jews who were reading this letter had. So let's go all the way back to the creation story in Genesis chapter two. You know, it goes day by day and we get to the seventh day and it says on the seventh day, Chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So this idea of a Sabbath day of rest didn't start with the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. It started clear back at the end of the work God had done creating when he rested from his work. The Jews knew that, and you're going to need to know it for chapter 4 to make sense. Now we'll move on and kind of do a rerun of the... Uh, background that you had to get for Hebrews chapter 3. And you will remember that it was Moses that led the children of Israel out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And as they left Egypt, they came to the Red Sea, but the whole Egyptian army was behind them because Pharaoh had changed his mind about letting them go. And they were truly between a rock and a hard place. And so the Lord told Moses to stretch out the shepherd's staff that he carried with him, and the sea parted, and they went across on dry ground. So the message here is that that whole bunch of Israelites was ready to go. 
The Lord had delivered them from slavery and they were going to travel through the wilderness to the promised land. That was their destination. So I'll show you here. You can see what that looked like. They started up there on the left with the crossing over the Red Sea. That is the probable or expected place where it probably was. They came down to Mount Sinai to receive the law. And within a few months or so, they had made it pretty close to their destination. And Moses sent 12 spies, you will recall, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, into Canaan, the land of promise, to check it out and see what they would be facing. And those spies came back with a wonderful report about how abundant the land was, and they had that giant cluster of grapes that it took two men to carry as it was uh, hanging from a pole, you know. But they also had a negative report about how fearsome the people that inhabited the land seemed to be, and they discouraged the Israelites, and the Israelites decided, oh no, we can't do this. We ought to go back where we came from. And their evil report was considered so sinful by the Lord that he told them, okay, that's it. You're not going into the promised land. Let me remind you of what we looked at last week from Numbers chapter 14. And yes, this is supposed to be a Sunday school class about Hebrews 4, but you do need this reminder background. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Let's see, that sounds like disbelief to me, doesn't it you? Lack of faith. And isn't faithlessness a sin? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Now, to get a little perspective on what they're saying here, these are the same people that watched the sea part. These are the same people that watched Moses strike a rock and water gushed out. These are the same hungry people in the middle of nowhere where you can't do farming that got up every morning and saw manna on the ground. Supernatural manna that would only last for one day unless you gathered it on Friday. And then it was good for two days and you didn't have to gather any on Saturday. And you go out on Saturday, the Sabbath day, where you're supposed to rest and there's not even any manna to gather. These are the same people that asked for meat and there was no way to get any meat out there in the middle of nowhere. And this enormous flock of quails came in and they flew so low that the people were literally able to reach up and grab them by the legs and they feasted on quail. These are the people that think God can't help them. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The Lord wasn't pleased with that, and he said to them, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who's treated me with contempt will ever see it. What is the point of all this? Do you think maybe this could be an allegory or a symbol for Christians today? Haven't we been released from the slavery of sin? 
And aren't we kind of going through a wilderness during the rest of our lives, faced with challenges, but seeing how he's providing for us? And isn't our destination the promised land, heaven to gain, eternity with the Lord? And aren't we sometimes kind of tempted to turn back on that? In this desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you 20 years old or more that was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. You see, there's a picture of the desert where they were. It was a lonely and desolate place. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They'll meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. Now, the people who were reading this letter, the Hebrews, knew this like the back of their hand. That's what Torah said. And then they also knew that the people that were 20 years old and younger did grow up to be adults during that 40 years, and they did go over into the promised land, and they did enter what is called God's rest. And in fact, later, when David became king and he wrote the Psalms, he focused on that whole story in history in Psalm 95. There they are camped out, you see. And part of Psalm 95 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Can you see why somebody like David might use symbolism like this, since he was a shepherd? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day at Massa in the desert. You see, he's calling to mind the story I just told you where the people got the negative report from the spies and they said, oh, this is foolishness. We can't go into the promised land. We don't believe that God is able. We want to go back to bondage. Verse 9, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. And then we continue on with 10. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they haven't known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Are you seeing a couple of things tied together here? Didn't we start with Genesis 2 where God rested on the Sabbath day? And then didn't we see the Israelites going through the wilderness to a place of rest, the land of Canaan? And now with that background in mind, we're ready to move on to what the writer of Hebrews has to say in chapter 4 to his readers. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest 
still stands. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. He's thinking back about how those older Israelites in the wilderness fell short of the promise. They started out. They put the blood on the doorposts when the death angel came through Egypt and they all escaped having their firstborn killed. And then they hurriedly gathered up all of their stuff when Pharaoh said, get out, get out, you go. And then they took off and they came to the Red Sea and they were being followed and the waters parted and they went with Moses. And when the whole Egyptian army was destroyed and they were safe, their leader, Moses' sister, Miriam, got out her tambourine and she stirred up the women and they danced around and praised and sang to God. And then they got a little further and the Lord provided manna and water. But then they kind of flagged, didn't they? And they lost hope and they wouldn't believe God and they didn't make it. So this first verse, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. Didn't the gospel come in the form of the law that God got to Moses on Mount Sinai? And then Moses went on to tell them, someday there's going to be a prophet like me and you better believe him. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. In other words, they didn't combine it with faith to the very end. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. Enter that rest. You know, God did his work and he rested on the Sabbath. And those younger Israelites that were under age 20 with, when all this happened, they went through the wilderness and it was a long, difficult journey that lasted 40 years and then they entered that rest. God has said, and remember I just showed you these scriptures, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That was from Psalm 95, David writing about the past. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. In other words, he's saying, they're talking about entering my rest. What do you think he was meaning there? For somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. Now he's getting ready to hearken back to Genesis 2. And do you notice he doesn't say, in the first part of the book of Genesis, he just says, somewhere... And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So he's going back and forth between Psalm 95 and Genesis 2. What a scholar this writer was. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience, in other words, faithlessness and disbelief is a damnable sin that can keep your soul out of heaven. Verse 7, therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, 
when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, and here we are going back to Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. David's saying, hey, I have a warning for you. You remember the people that didn't get to enter God's rest, the land of Canaan, because they wouldn't believe? Don't be like them. You think you're okay because you think you're a Christian and you're starting out on the right road and you're going along and going along. Well, the Israelites, they started out on the right road. There they were, all in a line, going across the Red Sea. And they all thought, boy, yeah, we're headed to the promised land. And you know what? They weren't. Their future did not include the promised land because they flagged, they lagged, they didn't believe him. They let it go. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. In other words, don't you see that story about the children of Israel and the younger ones growing up and going with Joshua and actually making it to the land of Canaan, that was all symbolic. It's supposed to be about us believing the Lord with all of our hearts clear till the end of our lives. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. That's Hebrews 4. So what is the central theme of this chapter? The first part of it is a stern warning not to wander off. We're supposed to stay on the path because if you wander off, you might not arrive at your destination. Just because you start walking doesn't mean you're going to get there. You know, people don't get college degrees because they do a percentage of the coursework. They don't get most of a diploma. If you do the whole four years except for one class, you can't graduate. It's not about enrolling. It's not about attending some of the classes. It's not about getting the general gist of the college experience. It's about finishing the whole thing. It's the same with entering God's rest. There aren't any prizes for mostly living the Christian life. You have to go through to the end. What makes you doubt that God will help you in a financial pinch? That God will save your wayward child? That God could ever help you break the chains of the addiction you're struggling with? That you could ever be free from depression? That a relationship you have could ever get any better? Beware. I used to have a band director. He was pretty notorious because he was so harsh that he would take us out to march and he would tell us to fix our eyes on something way off out in the distance. And he would say, head up, chin down, shoulders back, and eyes straight. And he would say, look ahead and go right towards it, straight down the line. And I've often thought about that term because he said it over and over and over. Head up, chin down, shoulders back, and eyes straight. And for me, it was a symbol of keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Along the lines of don't wander off, look at the very end of the whole Bible, the next to the last chapter of the last book 
Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the unbelieving, you know, people that lose their faith, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This surprises me. You know, I could see the sexually immoral people who are involved in the occult, people who are bowing down to idols that aren't really God. I could see the Lord lumping them all into this category of people who are going to be separated him from him for all eternity. But the unbelieving, why would somebody who struggles with doubt get put in such a harsh category, something called the second death? Because without faith, it's not possible to please him. That's what we're going to get to in a few chapters in Hebrews 11, he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. You know that story that we just looked at in Numbers 14? Why don't you think the Lord didn't, why didn't he send an angel and say to those faithless people, oh, I know it's discouraging, but don't give up. I really am here and I can take you through. He didn't because they'd already seen it with their own eyes. They saw a sea part. They saw enough food for 600,000 military-age men and all of the women and all the children and all of the older people every single day provided out there in the middle of nowhere, and yet they looked ahead to fighting and entering Canaan, and they said, oh, no, we don't think he can do it. He can't, and he said, all right, then, you will be without your destination. So the first of the three messages of this chapter is for sure, don't wander off. But let's keep going. We didn't finish reading the whole chapter. Now we're in verse 12. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Have you ever thought about how sharp a two-edged sword would be? You know, we have some decent knives for cooking at our house, but the one side isn't sharp. I mean, you could run your finger over it pretty hard and it wouldn't cause any damage. It's just one, a one-edged knife. But can you imagine a sword that's maybe four feet long and so sharp on both sides that it could cut through leather or something. Imagine the word of God piercing your soul like that so that when you read it, it helps you know what you are really thinking and what God thinks of it. It reveals your true heart. It uncovers things that maybe you hope were hidden away. I love the Andy Griffith show. And so whenever I get the chance, if a rerun comes on TV, I watch it. Barney Fife once told Andy Taylor about a woman 
I can see through her like she was a lace curtain. <laughs> I like that. But you know what? God's word's like that. His word can reveal to him and to you every hidden thing in your heart. You're more than naked in front of him. He sees under the skin. He sees your heart and your thoughts and your motives and your true intentions. In other words, the central message of this second part is you cannot fool him. You cannot fake it with him. Maybe you could have an unbelieving heart and everybody in your whole church would think that you were the most faithful Christian of all, but not the Lord. He has a CT scanner and whatever's deep inside there, he can do the MRI on your soul by his word. And then we get to the third of the three parts. Let's finish out this chapter starting with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now we're finally getting to the part where I told you the central theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better than, and we've already learned about how he's better than the angels and how he's better than Moses. And this is the prelude to another part in this book that's going to go on about him being better than the Jewish high priest. See, it's calling him a great high priest who's gone through the heavens. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So when you're tempted to doubt, like the Israelites were so tempted to doubt, when that negative report came from the, the spies, Two of those 12 spies, though, had an encouraging report, Caleb and Joshua. And they said, no, 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 don't be discouraged. We can do it. We are well able to defeat them. And even though they were over the age of 20, the Lord said, this whole generation is going to die off except for Caleb and Joshua. And they did have to wait 40 years. And they were pretty old when they went into the promised land. But their bodies had been protected and preserved and they were still like young men in their vigor. And they were rewarded by making it through. But this talk about a high priest called to the minds of the people who were familiar with the stories of Israel. After Moses got all the instructions for the priesthood, he had the garments specially constructed. And then there was a time when he anointed his big brother Aaron. And this is a drawing of that occasion. You can see how he's dressed in the priestly robes and he's got that breastplate with 12 precious stones carrying them before God like the intercessor that he was and that Jesus is for us. And he had a special turban. He's holding it in his hands there. And that calls to us how that we need an intercessor. We can't go directly to God. We're sinful. But Jesus has a hold of God with one hand as he is God. And then he grabs hold of us by that marvelous sacrifice that he made for our sins. And he's our intermediary. And as it said before, he's a great high priest who's gone through the heavens. And so for that reason, we hold firmly to our faith because he's showing us grace and if we respond in faith, then we have our salvation and then we can enter into his rest. 
And it finishes up by saying, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some people are afraid to bother God too much with their trivia. I mean, they'll pray for our nation or they'll pray that a mission message will reach the lost in Africa or Asia or somewhere, but they don't want to ask God for the everyday things, but he's your high priest and you can approach him with confidence. He understands what you've been through and he can help you. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. In other words, keep going. It's just up ahead. It's just up ahead. So that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. You know, famous Assembly of God missionary to Brazil, Don Stamps, who did the commentary for the Full Life Study Bible and who's been uh, dead for uh, oh, about 20 years at least, wrote, it is called the throne of grace because from it flow God's love, help, mercy, forgiveness, spiritual power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, his spiritual gifts, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and all that we need under any circumstance. One of the greatest blessings of salvation is that Christ is now our high priest opening a way to his personal presence whereby we can always seek the help that we need. Wow. Jesus is better than a Jewish high priest. Let's stay the course. So the bottom line is God's rest is just right up ahead. Don't blow it. Don't fall away. Just because you can see it up ahead doesn't mean you're going to end up there if you should reject your faith, let's keep going. Stay the course, call on your high priest when you need him, and let him bring you to your destination. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 